Okay, our passage this morning is a series of beginnings. We're going to look at the beginning of the ministry of Paul's third missionary journey. We've seen two of them. We're going to see one more. But that's covered in one verse, just the beginning. Just to let you know, okay, he's starting another missionary journey. And then we're going to see, because the church isn't a one-man team, it's not all about Paul or Billy Graham or your favorite professional Christian this week, and it probably will change. Uh, it's about all of us playing our position and hustling. So we go from the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey in one verse to the beginning of the ministry of a guy named Apollos, first in Ephesus, and then the beginning of his ministry in Corinth, or in and around Corinth in southern Greece. Okay, So look at verse 23, and I guess, again, for some context, go back to verse 22. We're going to look at the beginning of the ministry of Paul's third missionary journey. Okay, Let me get my clock out because it would be scary if I went too long. Right. Okay. Uh, when he had landed in Caesarea, Paul's finishing his second, goes to the airport, better known as the seaport for Israel at that time, Caesarea. That's where he lands. And he went up. When you go up, you go up to Jerusalem because it's on top of a mountain and greeted the church in Jerusalem. Then he went to Antioch in Syria, the missionary ascending church. So we're on the, the end of the second missionary journey. And then we read, and having spent some time there, after Paul had spent probably about three or four months, according to scholarship. He left, and he starts his third missionary journey from Antioch. They all start in Antioch. He left and passed successively through the Galatian region, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, cities like that, and Phrygia, uh, a Roman region just uh, a little west of those Galatian churches, strengthening all the disciples. I mean, Paul had a thing for the Galatians. He loved the Galatians. First missionary journey, he goes to the Galatian cities, preaches the gospel. In one of those cities, he gets stoned with rocks, and they try to kill him, and they actually drag his body out of town thinking he's dead. And then he miraculously gets up and walks away. And some of us think he actually was killed there and was miraculously resuscitated by God, or maybe he was almost killed and had a supernatural or supernormal recovery. But anyway, uh, these were places where he's paid the price and he talks about the scars in his body that he received that first time he went to the Galatian churches. But he still loves the believers there, even though the world uh, is not going to applaud Christianity. There's a lot of things to love in the world, and one thing we need to love is our fellow believers, not just in our church family, but of other denominations that trust Jesus Christ as well. They need to be very near and dear to our heart. But Paul loved this, these folks, and so every single time he starts another missionary journey, the first thing he does is visit the folks in the Galatian uh, church region, and he's doing that again this time. So you see his consistency. He's not a guy that comes in, starts something, you give him some money, and you never hear from him again. He's very much personally invested in the people he's ministering to, and uh, that's what the world needs. The world needs Christian love that's personal and real as opposed to Christian rituals that are fakey and just when it's convenient and fun and there's a big crowd so you can impress people how religious you are. So you don't want to fall into that trap. So that's the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. Now, beginning in chapter 19, we're going to spend several chapters talking about the details of Paul's third missionary journey. But Ken, right now, Luke's just letting you know Paul's off again on a missionary journey. But now, because he's not a one-man team and God's doing a lot of other stuff in the first century church beyond what Paul knows about or is doing, we get this information about Apollos. First, we see the beginning of the ministry of this guy, Apollos, in Ephesus. Look at verse 24. And um, 226. 
And it's kind of like Luke saying, meanwhile, back at the ranch, you know, meanwhile, back in Ephesus, remember where Paul had left Aquila and Priscilla? Now, as Paul's starting overland into what we would call southeast Turkey today, go across uh, to Ephesus on the west port of the modern nation of Turkey. Now, there's a Jewish guy named Apollos in Alexandria. And Alexandria was a big city named after Alexander the Great, had a huge library, which unfortunately about 100 years after this was burned. So all that stuff's gone. But I mean, if, if we could have some of that material, it would be great. But it's gone uh, by birth. And Alexandria was known as a place with a lot of universities, a lot of uh, you know eggheads lived there, a lot of detailed... Uh, teaching there, so he might have been, he would have certainly been a very well-educated guy. He's eloquent, uh, which is mentioned also in First Corinthians how eloquent he is. And he came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. Now this is happening in um, what uh, 53 A.D. when this event happens. How many of the New Testament books have been written in 53 A.D.? Uh, not many. Maybe James. Maybe Matthew. And that's probably all. So when he's talking about the scriptures here, he's thinking primarily of the Old Testament scriptures, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And as you know, the Old Testament scriptures, if this podium represents the life and death of Christ, the Old Testament are the books written before the coming of Christ that anticipates and predict his coming. The New Testament books are written right after his coming and kind of talk about specifically who he is. But Apollos is a guy who's been schooled in the Old Testament prophecies about the Savior, but he doesn't know specifically Jesus has come and fulfilled the prophecies. He knows about the early preaching of John the Baptist, who said the Messiah is here and you're going to meet him soon. That was his initial preaching, so repent and believe the gospel. And then, of course, as it goes on, he actually meets John the Baptist, meets Jesus, and so on. But Apollos is aware of the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is sending a Savior, he knows that John the Baptist, the prophet, had said, this is the generation that's going to happen. But look at verse 25. This man, Apollos, had been instructed in the way of the Lord as taught in the Old Testament. Now, how, how were people in the Old Testament saved? We, we would say, well, on the New Testament side, we know that people are saved for by grace, unmerited favor. You're saved by faith in Jesus and not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. Nothing for Kathy K. Rob to brag about, Okay. You're just a sinner who's been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, right? That's all we is, okay? So that's how we get saved in the New Testament. How do people get saved in the Old Testament? Same way. It's just that the object of their faith is different. On the New Testament side, we're saved by faith in the provided Savior, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, died to pay for our sins, everything that could keep Derek McPherson out of heaven, Jesus paid for on the cross in 33 A.D., and he rose again from the dead. Jesus did to validate the saving power of his death. So we're saved by faith in the provided Savior. In the Old Testament, how was somebody like Abraham saved? Abraham believed God's promises about the Savior, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So Apollos is an Old Testament believer living in the early phases of the New Testament era. And you had things like that happening. We're going to see it again next week in the first part of chapter 19. But this man, Apollos, had been instructed in the Old Testament scriptures about the way of the Lord. I'm sure he would have been very familiar with Isaiah 53, written in 700 B.C. that goes into great detail, Dennis, about Jesus and talks about 
him being uh, quiet before his accusers and being killed and, and, and yet being risen again after he's killed and that his death would be a satisfaction for the sins of the world. You get really everything you need to know in that one chapter. So he would have been very familiar with passages like that. So this man, Apollos, had been instructed in what the Old Testament said about the Savior and salvation. And he was happy and excited about it and happy to preach it, fervent in spirit. And he was speaking and teaching accurately about the Old Testament things concerning and about Jesus. But he didn't know that Jesus had come specifically. All he knew was that he was on the planet somewhere, as John the Baptist initially had taught. That is, Apollos was only acquainted with the early teaching of John, the baptism of John, where he's saying, hey, the Messiah is here, he's on the ground, repent, believe, and be ready, kind of thing. So, um, you know what? You don't have to be a theologian to be saved. But once you uh, are on the way of the Lord, you need to find out as much about Jesus as possible, as soon as possible, right? So, verse 26, and he began, Apollos, as an Old Testament believer, living on the New Testament side of the cross, but not knowing Jesus specifically or the details specifically, he began to speak out boldly in the, in the synagogue. Hey, John the Baptist said the Messiah is here somewhere. We're going to find out more soon. And so let me tell you what Isaiah 53 says and uh, Psalm 22 says and Exodus 12 says and Leviticus 16 says about the Messiah and about the need for a substitutionary atoning sacrifice to save us sinners. He's doing stuff like that. But when Priscilla and Aquila, now where are we? We're in Ephesus, right? What are Priscilla and Aquila doing in Ephesus? That's where Paul left him, right? At the end of the second missionary journey. And they've, they've connected the dots. They know who Jesus is. When they heard Apollos speak eloquently from the Old Testament, the Messiah is on the ground and coming, and we've got to believe in him because he's going to take care of the sin problem for us and eventually rule the whole world. Notice this. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside. They didn't interrupt his presentation, didn't embarrass him in front of this, the uh, uh, audience at the uh, synagogue. They took him aside, which means privately, probably took him out to lunch and said, man, we love the way you preach. We love your knowledge of the Old Testament, and we've got some information you need to know about. This Messiah you're talking about is Jesus of Nazareth. Boom. And boom, lights went on. He went for it. So they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Boom. I got a feeling that what they did for him is kind of what Paul did, go back to chapter 13 of the book of Acts, to the uh, Jewish folks in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. Look at this. this. I'm sure they kind of walked him through the Old Testament and plugged in the ultimate value, which is the person and work of Jesus Christ very specifically. Okay? Look at this. I'm just going to summarize some of this, but this is a brilliant uh, message Paul preaches where he just walks through the Old Testament and shows how all these prophecies build up and they point specifically to Jesus Christ. Look at Acts 13, verse 16. Paul stood up in a synagogue. Jewish listeners who knew all about the Old Testament had not yet heard specifically about Jesus. Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it, Passover, going through the, uh, the Red Sea. And for a period of 40 years, the generation that refused to conquer the land, he put up with them in the wilderness. You remember that? 
And then after that, he destroyed the seven nations in the land of Canaan. He distributed the land among the uh, people of Israel. And after this, this period, he gave them judges until Samuel. And then they asked for a king. Who was the king, first king of Israel? If you say George Washington, you got the wrong uh, thing. We're talking about Saul, David, and Solomon, our first three kings. He gave them Saul for 40 years. Verse 22. After God had removed him, he raised up the second king. Who's the second king? It'd be King David, right? To be their king. Concerning whom he testified, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do my will. From the descendants of this man, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and then several generations, according to the promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior. Just like Old Testament said, and by the way, his name is Yeshua. His name is Jesus. After John the Baptist had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose I am? I'm not the Messiah. I'm no big deal. I'm not even worthy of changing the shoes of the Messiah. And this is when he's still waiting for the Messiah before he meets him. Uh, Brethren, Paul says, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us, the apostles, Paul and other, the message of this salvation about Jesus as the fulfillment of all those promises in the Old Testament has been sent. Uh, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him, Jesus, nor the utterance of the prophets which he fulfilled, fulfilled them by condemning Jesus. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate, the Roman emperor, or, uh, uh, governor who had to check off on it, they asked Pilate that he, Jesus, be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, again, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, uh, the Passover analogy, they all talk about the suffering Messiah. They took him down from the cross, laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days, 40 to be exactly, he appeared to those who came with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now witnesses about Jesus to all the people. And we preach to you the gospel, the good news, that you can have salvation through faith in him alone, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus, just like the second psalm said the Messiah would be raised up. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, that was prophesied in the Old Testament also. Verse 36, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his generation, fell asleep. He died. Death rates 100%, right? And was laid among his fathers, and his body continues to, to decay. But he, the Messiah, Jesus, who God raised from the dead, doesn't undergo decay. He's got a resurrected body. He's not subject to that. Therefore, here's the bottom line to the synagogue audience. Paul said, Let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, Jesus, who died for your sins and rose again, forgiveness of sins, you want it? You can have it. It's proclaimed to you. That's plural there. In Oklahoma, we call that all y'all. Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to all y'all. Men, women, young, old. Through him, everyone who believes. Everyone. That's God's equal rights amendment right there. Through Jesus, died for our sins, rose again. Everyone who believes is freed from all sin, uh, all things, which you could not be freed by trying to obey the law of Moses. That's the kind of thing I'm sure Aquila and Priscilla covered um, with Apollos. Go back to chapter 10. We see a similar kind of a description starting from Old Testament and filling in the specifics about Jesus in uh, Acts chapter 10 when Peter is talking to Cornelius, who's a Roman uh, officer, military officer, 
who's been going to synagogue and wants to know about uh, Judaism and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the Jewish Messiah, who also is the Savior of the world. Look at uh, verse 34. This is Peter now, not Paul. There's one gospel, many apostles. God doesn't have a one-man team. But we all come on the team one at a time through faith in Christ. Look at verse 34. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. He loves Gentiles as much as Jews. But in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is welcome to come to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace to Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of all, you yourselves know the thing that took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism of John. You know that Jesus of Nazareth, God anointed him with the Holy Spirit, with power. He went about doing good. Drop down to verse 39. We, Peter, and the other apostles were eyeball witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews generally and in the city of Jerusalem specifically. But they put him on to death by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him up on the third day and granted they become visible. This is not a spiritual resurrection. It's a bodily resurrection. Not to everybody all at once. But the witnesses who were chosen beforehand to see the resurrected Christ, that is to uh, us, the apostles and others, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to, to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one who's been appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Bottom line, verse 43, of him. Who are we talking about, Blanche? Jesus Christ, right? Of him, the Lord Jesus Christ, all the Old Testament prophets, all the Old Testament scripture, bear witness that through his name, his name stands for who he is and what he did. Who is he? God, man, Savior. What did he do? Died for your sin debt, rose again from the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, who he is and what he did, everyone, that's God's equal rights amendment again, who believes in him, receives forgiveness of sins. So go back to the book of Acts. It'll be interesting in heaven to say, hey, Apollos, what exactly did Priscilla and Aquila say to you when they pulled you aside after you were preaching generically about Jesus from the Old Testament? Uh, he's going to say, they walked me through the Old Testament and plugged in the values of Jesus, that Jesus of Nazareth, in fact, is the Jewish Messiah, the Savior of the world, perfect righteous life, substitutionary death for your sins, resurrection from the dead. All who trust in him are given the gift of eternal life. This is an interesting phenomenon, only happened in the first century, but we got an Old Testament believer uh, hearing the specifics and, of course, embracing it, as you always would do, right? Now, look at verse 27, 28. We're going from Apollos in Ephesus to Apollos in Corinth. Now, um, I'm not sure why we had that there, that there, that there. Yeah, okay. That's my fault there. Okay, we've been in Ephesus, right? That's where Paulus has been preaching generically. Okay? Daryl, he's just preaching generally about the Old Testament, uh, about the Messiah and the promises there. But now he's filled in that Jesus was the specific person that was the Christ, the fulfillment of all that. And I have a feeling, think about it, Daryl, where were Priscilla and Aquila for at least 18 months before they went to Ephesus with Paul? They were there. In Corinth, the southern part of what we would call Greece today was called Achaia in the Roman system. Northern part was called Macedonia. Today, it's all one country called Greece. But he's heard about Paul ministering in and around Corinth. 
And I think that put a bug in his ear. I want to go over there. I want to kind of follow up on that and kind of maybe minister the churches that, that Paul had planted. So look what happens. Verse 27. Uh, and when he, and it's after a period of time of some months or maybe a year, uh, when he, that is Apollos, wanted to go across to Achaia, to where Corinth and Athens and Sparta and those cities were that he'd heard about, the brethren there in, in uh, Ephesus encouraged him. Said, yeah, I mean, you could do a great job there. Uh, as you know, the Corinthians need a lot of help because they've got a lot of issues. And so they wrote uh, to the disciples in Achaia just kind of vouching for this guy. You know, we, he's been here for a while, and he's a great preacher, and he really has uh, done a lot of great things, and he's, you know, he's, a re- he's the real deal kind of thing. And when he had arrived, we're not told how he got there. I'm pretty sure he didn't ride a horse, you know, because you have to go across water, right? So he probably got in a boat. And I had boats, like Greyhound buses, you pay him money and they take you over there. So when he got there, um, uh, let's see, when he arrived, middle of verse 27, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. He does evangelism, but he's more of a teacher of believers. And we talked about common grace and efficacious grace in the way God uh, draws us and opens our heart and helps us to see and believe. But he's talking about those kind of things. For Look what he's doing. He's doing apologetics. Now, have you heard that term, apologetics? You know, you hear the word apologetics. That sounds like you're apologizing for the faith. But the word apologetics comes from a Greek word that means to defend or proclaim. So apologetics is defending the Christian faith against obvious objections. You know, if God's good, why is there evil? You know, can Christ really be the only way? What's so special about Jesus? Those kind of issues that come up, and people have honest questions about that. So he's able to go in the Old Testament and answer the kind of questions people might have as they read the Scripture and try to connect the dots. So he is powerfully refuting Jewish opponents of Christianity in public, doing apologetics from Scripture, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Now, I've said this a couple of times, but it's been a while since I think I've really emphasized it. Uh, the, the word Christ isn't Jesus' last name. We tend to think, you know, the average American tends to think Joseph Christ, Mary Christ, virgin birth, virgin conception, Jesus Christ. But Christ isn't his last name. It's a title for him. And I want to say a couple things about that before we close. Four things everybody needs to know about the, ter- the term Christ. Number one, the term Christ in its fullest sense as the Savior that gives eternal life is an exclusive title for one person. Only one person qualifies for that title, and it's not you, and it's not even the Pope. And I'm going to say something really sacrilegious. It's not even Donald Trump. The only person that can legitimately take the title of Christ in the full soteriological sense is Jesus of Nazareth. John the Baptist was so bombastic, and as you know from biblical history, after a period where every generation of Jews would get a great teaching prophet, there was a period of 400 years of silence. After Malachi, there were no prophets for 400 years, and the nation is desperately waiting to hear from a prophet. And then John the Baptist breaks onto the scene, and he's a lot like Elijah. And this is before Twitter or Instagram, but word spread rapidly. we got a prophet on our hands, and he's saying the Messiah is on the ground somewhere. And this is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was so bombastic before Jesus kind of began his ministry, a lot of people were assuming John the Baptist was the Messiah, was the Christ. And the Gospel of John emphasizes in chapter 1 that John the Baptist had to 
multiple times denies that I'm not the Christ. I'm not even worthy to change his shoes. Uh, he's coming. I'm just the helper, you know. But the Christ is a title that exclusively applies to Christ. Number two, Jesus of Nazareth. Number two, Jesus himself claimed to be the Christ multiple times, uh, but John 10, uh, 24 through 25 is a good place for that. So the title only belongs to him. He claimed it for himself. When he's claiming to be the Christ, he's saying, I'm the issue and the issue of eternal life. I'm the only place you can get it. I'm the only one who can give it to you. Now, that's pretty offensive to 21st century politically correct ears. I mean, how dare you say there's anything special about Jesus? But we're daring to believe the truth that Jesus is the God-man Savior, and that means he is unique. There's nobody else like him. Other religious teachers, Muhammad, um, Joseph Smith, people like that, claim to be people who can show you the way to God. Jesus claimed to be God, and therefore he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So that term Christ is very exclusive. It's very specific. He claimed that this isn't something somebody foisted on him after the fact. He claimed it himself during his ministry. The term Christ is equivalent to Savior in English or Messiah in Old Testament parlance. The Old Testament had predicted the Messiah would suffer for sins, be resurrected from the dead, and both the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles emphasized that in a lot of detail. So Christ is exclusively applied to Christ. Christ took it himself and referred himself as the Christ. The title means Messiah or Savior, the one who would die and rise again. And number four, and let's look at uh, John chapter 20. It's interesting. Uh, yeah, we are studying the book of Jude on Wednesday nights and in the third verse of the book of Jude, he tells you exactly why he's writing that letter. He says, I was going to do something else, but now I'm writing that you'll contend for the faith, once for all delivered uh, to the saints. Uh, so that's a book that has its purpose statement at the very beginning of the book. The Gospel of John has a purpose statement, but as I like to say, the key to the John, book of John hangs at the back door. The purpose for this whole Gospel is told to us, in the last two verses of chapter 20. So if you've got a Bible, look at the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And we're thinking about the term Christ and how important it is. And the truth that Jesus is the Christ is the essential content of saving faith. It's just that important. Therefore, I'm looking at John 20, the Gospel of John, verse 20, verse 30 and 31. Therefore, as he's finishing up his book, he says... Many other signs, many other miracles Jesus also did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. I'm not trying to tell you everything I saw. I'm not trying to tell you everything I could tell you about Jesus. I've picked seven specific miracles plus the resurrection, the focus. That's enough. That's sufficient for you to know who he is and what he did. But, verse 31, these, what I have included in the book up to this point, have been written that you may believe, active receptive trust, that Jesus is what? The Christ, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the one slain for our sins. Everything I keep Russell Ponder out of heaven, Jesus died and paid for. Even the stuff you haven't done yet before. Because how many of your sins were future when Jesus died on the cross, Russell? All of them. How many were forgiven when you trusted him? All he paid for, which is all of them, right. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, the average American thinks, oh, yeah, I believe that. I believe he's the Christ. That's his last name, of course. That Brad's the McCoy. 
that Lindley's the love it. You know, it's not really believing that much. It's just you can find on the birth certificate. This is very significant that he's the savior. He's the exclusive issue and issuer, issuer of eternal life. He's the son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. And that believing have life in his name. That's gospel of John, Eric. Now open your Ryrie study Bible, my friend, to first John, which is back toward the back of the New Testament. Just a couple books this side of Revelation. You've got the big old Gospel of John, 21 chapters, and you've got 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. 1st John's a letter of five chapters. Go to the last chapter, chapter 5 of 1st John. If you see 2nd Peter, you're one book away. Just keep going toward the back. If you see Jude, back up a couple. Go back to the front a couple books. 1st John, chapter 5. John seems to think this term Christ is really pretty important. It's like this it's kind of the whole deal. He says in 1 John 5, verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ has a chance to earn his salvation. So what it says? Might be able to hold on. Might be able to keep. Might be able to earn it. Might be able to, you know, do something to impress God. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is the issue, the issue were. You don't have to be a theologian to be saved. You may have simplified the content, but you're believing that Jesus did what's necessary to get you to heaven because he died for your sins and rose again. Everybody believes that Jesus Christ is born of God, right? Now, look at this. Drop down to verse 4. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. The world system wants you to believe anything about Jesus except that he's the exclusive issue and the exclusive issuer of eternal life. Shiloh. That's, the world wants you to believe anything. You don't have to believe Jesus was a bad guy. You can believe he's a great prophet. Muslims believe Jesus is the greatest prophet of all time except for Muhammad. Muhammad trumps him. But they believe a lot of nice things about Isa. In Arabic, you call Jesus Isa. But those of us like these radical people like Tommy Lovett, Russell Ponder, Danny Pollock, these people actually believe Jesus is the Son of God, died for the sins, rose again. Uh, and you're overcoming the world system because they want you to believe anything about Jesus but that. And this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. Who's the one who overcomes the world but he who believes Jesus, the Christ, is the Son of God. Boom. So this isn't just theology. This is like you going to heaven kind of stuff. Have you believed in Jesus as your Savior? If you believed in him as your Savior, you've trusted him, you believe he's the Christ. Uh, and it's just that important. Now, it's interesting. Book of Acts really emphasizes this too. And just hold on to your hats. Rather than flipping, we're going to use the power of PowerPoint to go to the passages. But multiple times, this is just a couple of them in the Book of Acts. You get the same emphasis in Acts five forty-two. Every day in the temple and from house to house, the apostles kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ, when he died for his sins, rose again, the issue and issuer of eternal life. Acts nine twenty-two. But Saul who just came to faith miraculously on the road to Damascus, kept increasing in, tr in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. It's that important. That's the whole thing, Tom. Acts 17, verse 23. And hey, hey, look, I'm not naive. I know a lot of people who don't really believe in Christ, including a lot of clergy on the far left, will, of course, refer to Jesus as the Christ. I have a guy here locally who every time he prays, prays to Jesus the Christ. But he doesn't believe Jesus is the unique issue and issue of eternal life. He's not even sure Jesus was resurrected, and he sure doesn't believe he died and paid for anybody's sins. 
He believes that Jesus really was a community organizer who felt sorry for the poor and mistrodden of the world, and I'm sure he cares for all of us. As Lincoln said, God must love the poor people because he made so many of them. And of course we should have a concern for the poor, but he wasn't just a community organizer. He wasn't a philosopher. He was the Messiah. He's the incarnation of God. He was the Christ. Acts 17, 2 and 3. According to Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue for three Sabbaths, or to, for, uh, went to the synagogue and for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Old Testament scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Jesus, uh, giving evidence, I looked at the wrong one, had to suffer and rise again, saying this Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Acts 18.5. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word there in Corinth, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the was and is the Christ. And then from our passage just now, go back to Acts 18, we're seeing this isn't just Peter's message, it's not just Paul's message, this is Apollos's message. God's not a one man, doesn't have a one man team. He needs all of us playing our position and hustling, right? One thing about basketball is great is that you know, basketball is one of those sports where if you don't have to have the best player on the on the court usually. If you just have five decent players that hustle and play their position, you got a whale of a chance to win, right? Uh, if everybody plays their role, you can win. As opposed to just get one really good player and four guys watching to play basketball. You know, it kind of depends on what level you're playing. But it's kind of a good analogy there. But yeah, go back to chapter 18, verse 28, it's where we left a minute ago. Apollos, uh, there in Corinth, southern Greece. We we're going to leave him temporarily. Uh, powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scripture that Jesus was what? He's the Christ. Okay. So the bottom line on this title, and don't ever take it for granted or water it down, is a highly significant title identifying Jesus of Nazareth as the all-sufficient Savior of everyone who puts their trust in him. He's the God-man Savior. Perfect righteous life. Complete substitutionary atoning death, literal bodily resurrection. He's the basis of salvation, and we receive him through faith, active receptive trust. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe on his name. I love Romans 4, 5 that says, But to the one who does not work but believes in Christ who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. So uh, as... Paul preached the gospel, as Peter preached the gospel, as Apollos preached the gospel, I'm preaching the gospel. If you've never trusted Jesus as the Christ, you can have him as your Savior right now. Uh, He's knocking on the door. He's a gentleman. He won't kick it in. But you can open the door and say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Uh, It's my fault. I can't fix it. You can, and I want you to. I believe you died for me as my substitute and rose again. I trust you as my Savior. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Now, here's the thing. Whether it's Gray, uh, Graylin as a little kid trusting Christ, or Bob Shallot as a, how old was he? 87, yeah. I was going to say 90, but I you know, wouldn't have done justice. Whether you're uh, a little kid or an 87-year-old person, uh, when you trust Christ as Savior, you get salvation as a free gift. Uh, if, I give you, if I give you a, uh, what do you want? On a bass boat? If I give you a bass boat on Monday and on Wednesday you get a bill, it's not a gift, okay? Gifts are free. 
They don't have a belt on it. But here's the thing. When you trust Christ, you get salvation as a free gift. But he doesn't, you know, save you just like you are. But he loves you too much to leave you like that, okay? And he doesn't just give you a get-out-of-hell-free card. He gives you a whole new capacity to serve him, and he expects you to. And he'll empower you to. Uh, and it's important because he's not running a one-man team. Uh, it's a team that's centered on one man, the God-man Savior. But uh, God's team isn't a one-man team. It wasn't all in Paul. It wasn't all in Peter or Apollos. And as, as talented as somebody like James Mitchell is, uh, he's not a one-man team. I'm glad he's on our team. I'm glad he, and he plays a lot of positions, but he's not a one-man team. There's an old saying, and I'm going to close with this. Hold your applause. Uh, I always say that and go on for a while, but um, there's an old saying about American churches that 10% of the people do 90% of the work. You ever heard that? Uh, I honestly, 28 years later, I think TBF has a much higher percentage rate than that. But even for us, you know, when a fairly small percentage of peeps do a large percentage of the work, you know, the people doing the 90% of the work get tired. <laughs> and it's unnecessary because... Other people ought to be pulling on the oars. And as, as organized as Ray is, it's easy for us to throw a lot of things her way. And I, and I know you thrive on activity. And idle hands are the devil's workshop, which is the only reason we give you so many things to do around here. Just so you'll know. Because Eric told me you needed it. So, But when you get somebody who does playing three positions at the same time, that means two people who are cheering her on are missing the blessing of kind of some sweat equity in the ministry of the church. And so, I, you know, as a pastor, you go, man, it's just, you know, God's going to give us the players we need to do what he wants us to do. But the more players that get on the active roster, as opposed to sit on the bench, uh, or they're uh, voluntarily on the disabled list, you know, uh, the more blessing they get. Sure, it helps the church, too. But God's going to give us what we need to do, what he wants us to do as a church. I just believe that, you know. Uh, with you or without you, with me or without me. But you just miss a lot if you don't get um, in your seat and pull on the oars more often. Um, the thing about it is, though, I don't think most people, most American Christians that, that kind of under-contribute uh, uh, with their time and their efforts, I don't think that most of that's malicious or selfish. I think sometimes they just focus on a James Mitchell or a Jenny Heath or a Janice Skinner or an Eric Ward or an Olga Pollock uh, where she handles the uh, email prayer list thing, and they just go, "Wow, you know, she does such a great job. She doesn't need my help. I just, I, I don't, I don't even want to mess it up. You know, I'm, I'm the kind of person. I'm the kind of person that thinks, you know, if I get involved in something, if there's any way I can mess it up, I probably will. You know, um, as much as I love softball, in the back of my mind, I just tell you, some of those innings we get up there, and all eight guys would get hits, and then I'm the ninth guy. And you know what I'm thinking about? It's going to be so embarrassing to be the only guy this inning that makes an out. You know, I mean, you know, you just, that's just the way I think. So I think a lot of people are just maybe intimidated by the fact that God does empower some people to really overachieve in the church. And we kind of look at that and just say, man, I hope Ray, hope nothing happens to Ray or Janice or, or James. Or we're going to be in a lot of trouble. Well, Brad doesn't do that much. Anybody can cover for him. But I mean, for these other people, oh, my goodness, you know. So I, And that's cool. But they don't see themselves as one people teams, one man team, and you shouldn't either. Uh, if the Apostle Paul wasn't a one man team, um, not even world class Christians like some of the ones running around here are one man teams. But to finish the analogy and to close, you know, God's team, his draft picks, you know, in, in professional level, you have draft picks, 
And, and we are. We're chosen. So we're all draft picks. All of God's draft picks to play uh, on his team are designed to play certain positions. Now, you know what? I'm never going to be on the worship team. Unless we have a lot, a lot of men here, and they do the old Barney Fife thing where you turn your microphone real down, you know, and then I, I could sing with that group, you know, I wouldn't mess it up too bad. I'm willing to do stuff like that. But I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be able to do what James does up on the platform with worship, and I wouldn't even try. But I've got some other things I can do, even when nobody's around watching me do it, that kind of makes this thing work, you know? And the only person that really counts is God, being aware of what you're doing, so who cares? So, you know, God wants all of his draft picks, and if you're a believer, you're a draft pick on God's team. He's given you a unique set of skills, gifts, talents, aptitudes, and he wants you to plug in and score some points for the team. And as you do that, um, God's going to be glorified, and you're going to get a, a lot of blessing from it. It's just so much more blessed to give than just to receive. And so uh, let's not let some of the overachievers in our midst, like Paul or James Mitchell or Ray Ward, uh, blind us to the fact that we need to be involved and we need to be doing our share as well. Okay? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this reminder that as much as uh, Acts focuses on Paul and all the stuff he did, and he's a very amazing person, uh, you were doing a lot of stuff over and above what Paul's doing, including using somebody like Apollos, another really gifted guy, including a lot of folks at Antioch Bible Fellowship who are just praying, going to work, and putting some money in the box so pay for all these mission trips, uh, help us to realize there's a place for each one of us as believers to contribute with sweat equity, uh, prayer equity, uh, and even some financial equity into the fr- framework of this church. And forgive us for sometimes looking at those who are really effective and efficient and thinking, you know, there's no reason, they don't need my help. They don't, they don't need me to do anything around here. Everything's fine. Uh, open their eyes to see ways they can plug in. Uh, for some of those that d- do great and uh, a lot of things around here, uh, keep them from getting weary. Let them uh, have the joy of knowing they're contributing and uh, bless them and their family for their efforts. And again, Father, we pray that your word would teach us truths here and concepts that can help us live a, a more biblical, Christ-like Christian life. And as we think about the fact that The church is not a one-man team. It is focused on one man, the God-man, Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that he will have preeminence and glory above everything else in this church and all the churches uh, on this planet, even on this Lord's day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.